Today's reading is from Ephesians 5 and 6, starting at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself, gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their masters and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord. And we all say, thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for um, even the background noises you hear <laughs> as we're uh, live streaming on, on H Street. God, I thank you that you uh, bless every person that is uh, tuned in with us. God, I thank you as Matthew comes that um, he will be an extension of you. God, I pray that our eyes and ears and hearts are open and ready to receive. Amen. Hey, uh, good morning, Christ City Church. Uh, I do hope that you're doing well this weekend. Uh, it's been a beautiful weekend in D.C. Uh, I've been seeing many of your posts of your backyard barbecues and your best efforts of enjoying the start of spring and doing it safely. Um, this morning, we will be continuing in our series uh, on being church and our walk through the book of Ephesians. Uh, we've got a spicy passage this morning, if not a troubling one, and I'm anxious to get into it. But before we do, there are a few things in the life of our body and our city that I want to address quickly. Um, first, I want to assure you that um, the pastors and staff and elders uh, are continuing to track with the D.C. Health Department and Mayor Bowser's metrics for reopening and the stages for reopening. We also continue to consult with other churches and church networks in our area and the larger DMV region in an effort to identify risks and best practices to staged reopening for churches. However, I want to say that for now, we don't yet know when we will gather together as a larger church body at Minor Elementary School. But in the meantime, I want to encourage all of us to continue to be the church, even as we're scattered, to be the church by caring for your neighbors and your neighborhood. Christ City Church, we are to be salt and light in our community. You are to be chaplains in your neighborhoods, checking in on your neighbors, letting them know that you're available to help, to run errands, to pray for them. Church, be a faithful presence in your neighborhood as you shelter in place. Be the church by gathering online with your, with your church family. 
Our small groups are all online. They're going strong. Small groups for men, for women of color, for couples, for anybody with a smartphone. Groups that are digging into God's word, that are praying together and reminding each other of the glorious hope that we have in Jesus. If you're not in a small group, why not? You aren't going anywhere. Your Wednesday night's free. Just join a group. Jump into one of the online socials um, that, uh, that are going on, that are being hosted through the week. Uh, there's one for singles, one for parents. Um, these uh, weekly rhythms, um, grab a glass of wine, uh, log on with others within the church that have shared experiences with you. Church, do not go through this alone. Christ is with you, and so is the body of Christ. At some point, we will gather all together. And it will be fantastic. I don't know when, and I don't know what it will look like, and I'm not even sure where it will be. But this season won't last, and we will be together again. And between now and then, let us encourage one another, let us exhort one another to continue the work of a Christian, to to love God passionately and to love our neighbor joyfully, even in the midst of a pandemic. I want to ask you to continue to pray for us and for the elders as we look to lead Christ City in this unique season and know that we will keep you posted as new information and new developments arise. The second thing I want to address uh, is that uh, I know that Monday is Memorial Day. I know that many of you will be remembering family members and friends who died in military service. And I also know firsthand how Challenging it can be to grieve the loss of loved ones and to celebrate their lives when you're unable to gather together with family and friends in the ways that you otherwise would. I pray that as you remember loved ones this weekend, as you memorialize their service to our country, I pray that God meets you in the commemoration and that the Lord comforts you and reminds you and all of us that we do not grieve as those without hope, but rather we celebrate their lives and their living even as we long for resurrection and the day of Christ's return, and his setting of all things right and all things new. Uh, The last thing I want to speak to um, is that there are a number of you that have accomplished some remarkable things this year. Graduating class of 2020, congratulations. I see you. The church sees you, and we're proud of you. Congratulations on your doctorates from American University. Congratulations on your master's degrees from Howard and from Georgetown. Uh, We are proud of you and your hard work. And DC High School graduates of 2020, you guys are the most resilient bunch. Super tough. Amazing. Uh, You all sacrificed a lot so that our city could be safe. And so I want to say thank you to you. I honor you, I'm proud of you, and I cannot wait to see how God uses you as you move into the next season of life and leadership. So congratulations, graduates. We are just so very proud of you. Um, Amen and amen. A a virus cannot stop honorable memorials or celebrations of accomplishments, and it's not stopping God's work in and through the church. Amen. So I want to begin, I want to ask you a question. Um, if I were to ask you, what, were the fir- what are the first three words that come to mind when I say the word church, we might get all sorts of responses. And, and, and as a matter of fact, if you're able, I want you to go ahead uh, and type into the chat or the comment section the first three words that come to mind when I say church. And your words can't be Christ City Church. So you got to be a little more you know, creative than that. Go ahead, share what comes to mind. Now, some of the words may be things like community or family or friends. 
Or we might get words like mission, service, care, or outreach. Other words may be less positive. We, we might hear words like religion or oppression or corrupt or pain. This is a question worth asking and worth exploring. What does it mean to be the church? And all the more worth exploring even when one of our consistent functions of weekly corporate worship gatherings in a shared place, when that's removed from our spiritual practice tool belt. What does it mean to be the church? And we've been asking this question and hopefully approaching an answer to this question each week. Four weeks ago, we began walking through the New Testament book of Ephesians, or better said, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. We've been making our way through this powerful book in an attempt to understand what it means to be a church. We began this journey because we wanted to understand a bit better what it was that formed the first Christian communities, what anchored them around what did they gather, what, what held them together as a community, even when they were increasingly different and diverse from one another. We, we wanted to understand what set them apart as a community from other communities, what informed their living and the decisions that they made. What did the early church see as their purpose and their mission? The sum total of these questions and the sum total of the answers have helped us approach a better understanding of what it means to be the church. And today in Ephesians 5, we've come to one of the most tragically misapplied passages in the history of the church, and especially the American church. And just to uh, reset and remind us, uh, what we're reading is a letter that's sent from the Apostle Paul to the churches that were in the city of Ephesus, which was in Asia Minor or in modern-day Turkey. Ephesus uh, was a cosmopolitan city that flourished under Roman rule and was among the gateway cities in Asia Minor that lived at the intersection of Roman Europe to the west Asia to the east, and Israel, Egypt, and the Middle East to the south. And Paul is writing to a church that he helped found. He's writing to a church whose pastor is a man that Paul discipled in Timothy, one whom Paul would write additional letters that are included in the New Testament, First and Second Timothy. Paul is writing to a church that he wants to encourage in the faith. And he's writing from prison, having been incarcerated in Rome because of his faith in Jesus. Paul is writing to remind the church of who they are and in whom their faith rests and how to live out their faith in the midst of their city. Which brings us to chapter 5 and 6. As I said, uh, this section of scripture, and, and there are a few others, they were the bedrock passages that were used by pastors in the U.S. in the 1800s to argue for the Bible's support for slavery. Pastors and theologians such as Jonathan Edwards and Moses Stewart of Andover Seminary, they used this very passage to argue for the allowable existence of slavery within the United States, and in Edwards' case, their own owning of slaves. Ephesians 5 and 6 have been used to prop up patriarchal systems within the context of marriage, family, and society to the oppression of women. It's, it's the backdrop of Ephesians 5 and 6 that has at times led, the, led churches to treat women as second-class citizens and cultivated contexts where marital abuse and trauma are tolerated under the guise of some biblical mandate. I want to be clear, in any and all cases where the use of Scripture to advocate for the subjugation of humans, well, that's to do violence to the gospel and to allow violence to those made in God's image. God is a freedom-giving God, and the gospel is a freedom-giving message. If any interpretation of the Bible leads to something other than freedom found in Christ, then it's not the gospel of Christ. It's a foreign gospel whose origins are not of God's kingdom. 
You know, let me speak briefly on biblical interpretation for a minute because I think uh, it will help us wrestle with this passage. One of the rubric or one of the filters through which we as Christians are to read the scriptures and interpret the scriptures is through the lens of Jesus. Our understanding of any passage, Old or New Testament, is to be measured against what we know of Jesus, what we know of his life, of his death, of his resurrection, and the things that Jesus taught. Jesus is our guide. He's our our Bible decoder ring. Jesus becomes the litmus test we measure our interpretations of the Bible against. If my interpretation of a passage doesn't square with what I know of Jesus, with what Jesus taught or the message that he embodied, then I have to go back to the passage and admit that I don't yet understand and my task is to continue to dig. Now digging it can be hard, especially with troubling passages and especially with passages with a troubling history such as Ephesians 5 and 6. And it's so, so I, I may want to dismiss the passage or I may want to ignore it or simply say that it's only contextually bound and it's ancient and, and irrelevant to my life. But God's word to us in the scriptures reveals aspects of who God is. And yes, at times that message is clouded by cultural differences between the ancient world and our own and the contexts of ancient cities and our own communities. But if we dismiss troubling passages, and we may well miss something of God's love and care for us as it shows up even in unlikely places. So with all of that being said, let me see if I can unravel some of the beauty that's actually in Ephesians 5 and 6. One of the first helpful things to note about Ephesians uh, 5.21-6.9 is that Paul is following a literary pattern that was common in Roman literature and Greek philosophy. And this pattern is often referred to as the household codes. Household codes were common lists of practices and believed virtues that were to govern families and society in the Greco-Roman world. Now, these lists and their literary structure, they were common in the writings of the day, and they find expression in many of the popular Greek philosophers, such as Aristotle, Josephus, Philo, all who wrote household codes. Now, the reason these household codes were rampant in Greek writing and thought is because in Paul's day, Roman thinkers and writers were troubled by the spread of what they referred to as religions from the East, Christianity included, which they thought would undermine traditional Roman family values. Often these writings uh, would be exhortations about uh, the male head of a household and how they should deal with members of his family and usually break down into discussions of husband-wife, father-child, master-slave relationships. A couple of quick examples to the point. Philo was a Jewish philosopher from North Africa who worked to harmonize Greek philosophy and the Jewish faith. In his household codes, he stated, wives must be in servitude to their husbands. Parents must have power over their children. And the same holds for any person over whom the man has authority. Similarly, Josephus, another Greek-influenced Jewish philosopher who was a contemporary of Jesus, wrote echoing the sentiment of the day, the woman, says the law, is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly be submissive, that she may be directed, for the authority has been given by God to the man. But perhaps the most influential of the household code authors was Aristotle himself. Writing in his liminal text, Politics, he says, Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children. What was consistent in the ethos and the writing of these household codes of the day was they were all written in order to establish patriarchal power over women, 
children and slaves. The codes were to reinforce this belief and codify the subjugation of others. The household codes all addressed men and men's power over others in their home and in society. And it's into this cultural conversation that Paul writes to the church and to a people well-versed himself in the household coding of the day. And what Paul writes in Ephesians is, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This, This beginning statement, this beginning to Paul's household codes is subversive work. He's taking a known approach to understanding social and family order, and he's announcing another order that rests not on a man's perceived superiority over women or others. Instead, Paul is centering humanity's collective value, male and female, adult and child, in the person of Jesus. Paul is starting with mutual submission, one to another, out of reverence for Christ, the Savior who gave up his life for others. And from there, with Jesus at his starting point, Paul begins walking through a different set of codes for this new family, this new humanity, this new human family that is anchored and rooted in the completed work of Jesus on the cross that we impacted a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Ephesians 2. Undoubtedly, the first hearers of this letter, they would have known immediately what Paul was doing. They would have known that he was beginning a household code. And they would have known that he was tampering with the formula. It would be in in much the same way as if I were to say, four score and seven years ago, trespassers brought forth on this continent disease and destruction and domination, conceived in theft and the pursuit of money and power, and dedicated to the proposition that might makes right. Now, your American ears would know that I was tampering with the Gettysburg Address and subverting it to make a point. And this is precisely what Paul is doing. He's addressing an existing structure and an existing belief and what makes a rightly ordered society, and he's critiquing it through the lens of Jesus. 2,000 years later, as we look back at it through our own sensibilities, we can widely miss the Christ-centric sabotaging work that Paul is doing. Through the passage, Paul addresses both parties, wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. And this dual narrative is likewise subversive. The Roman household codes, they only address the husband's authority and all others' obligations to that authority. However, Paul doesn't just address wives' responsibility to the husbands or children's responsibility to the parents and so forth. Rather, when Paul highlights that a husband is to love his wife and parents aren't to exacerbate their children and masters are to treat slaves as fellow heirs in Christ, what Paul is doing is he's bringing into clear focus the alternative nature of the family of God. And that alternative hinges on the beginning anchoring phrase in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit, honor, laud, appreciate. Such language would have been thought of as absurd in the Roman world because it assumes equality. It assumes the eradication of orders built on the conquest of others and at the expense of the vulnerable. It assumes mutuality, and it assumes the ongoing practice of preferencing the other over oneself. And that Christocentric social ethic would have been disturbing to those in power and liberating to those ground down by the power structures and the powerful in society. In other words, what Paul is announcing in Ephesians 5 and 6 in a very contextual way is the gospel. He is saying the old order of things has passed away. 
And Paul is giving practical application to his previous arguments in Ephesians 2 that Jesus is creating in himself one new humanity, making peace, reconciling both to God. And because of that work that Jesus secured on the cross, wives are no longer simply subject to their husbands, but now husbands are called to submit to their wives. Children are no longer simply many servants to the fathers, but fathers are called to display godly care and patience to their children. And slaves aren't property for master's whims, but are sharers in God's kingdom and co-heirs with Christ. And all of this is why any interpretation of this passage that works to extract an application of oppression is simply wrong. Any interpretation of this passage that seeks to hold power rather than find in ever-increasing ways, um, ways to submit to and to, to honor those in the family of God. It's wrong-headed, and it perverts the spirit of what Paul is instructing the church in Ephesus to do. It doesn't take into account Paul's own context, Paul's subversive aims, nor the gospel's trajectory towards freedom in Christ. Now, let me speak to the references to slavery for a moment. I want to be honest about a few things. I don't know why Paul doesn't say outright in this passage that slavery as an institution is wrong. I don't know why it doesn't say it here. Slavery in the ancient world and in the biblical world in a number of ways, it was quite different than the chattel slavery of America. It didn't carry the dehumanizing quality of American slavery that stated that African Americans were three-fifths humans. Slaves in the ancient world, they had a measure of autonomy. They could enter and leave slavery. They could own property and amass wealth. Nevertheless, while Paul doesn't outright condemn the institution here in Ephesians, he does in other places. Most notably in 1 Timothy, the letter that he would write to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. He would say in 1 Timothy 1 that slave traders or man-stealers, as some of the old English translations put it, Paul states that states outright that slave trading is contrary to sound doctrine. It's incompatible with the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul encourages those in slavery to find their freedom. In Philemon, a letter that Paul writes to an owner of slaves, Paul writes that he should free his slaves. In Galatians and Colossians, both Paul, providing echoes of the new humanity that Jesus secured, notes that in Christ there's no longer slave nor free. At every point in the New Testament where slavery as an institution is addressed, the bend, the arc, the trajectory is towards freedom and liberation. This passage included. There's no other way for masters to understand, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ other than through the lens of mutuality and liberation. However, much of white American Christian history has been slaveholding history. And the witness to the gospel of Christian freedom has been corrupted. So much so that some have taken this very passage that Paul intended to display deliverance and use it to further the oppression of others. So, what do we do with this passage today? What would be a right application of this passage in the context of Christ City Church? How does this passage help us be church? Well, a couple of thoughts, uh, and, then, and then we'll be done. First, I think a faithful application of this passage would be for us as a community of faith in 21st century America, in the nation's capital, to preference the gospel witness that comes to us from women, children, and historically marginalized people. In Paul's ordering of his household codes, he consistently mentions the most vulnerable and easily exploited of the relationships first. He mentions women, 
children, slaves. This is the position of dignity in the household codes. It is to these women, children, slaves that Paul references. And it is uh, these that the Roman cultural codes of the day withheld dignity. Paul is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew that God chose an enslaved people to initially be his people. He knew and wants us to know that God has a special place for those that have experienced bondage, those who have groaned, those who have asked, how long, O Lord, who have had only the Lord to cling to. Paul preferences the voices of those who have known deliverance of the Lord, and we would be wise in 21st century America to heed that same practice. Secondly, I think for us to be a faithful church, especially in our dealings with each other, is to practice mutual submission to one another, to be marked by Ephesians 5.21 and to do so out of reverence for Christ, to practice honoring one another, caring for one another, of surrendering our preferences for the sake of others so as to follow in the footsteps of Jesus who surrendered his preferences so that we might become heirs with him in God's kingdom. It means we aren't a people always demanding our way or our rights or our own sense of rightness. It means we defer. It means we listen. We honor others, particularly those of us that come from privileged backgrounds. And in that posture of care and humility, we might identify with Jesus and display his character to the world around us that is drunk on power. And then we will be a people bearing faithful witness to the Lord the righteous king who gave up his life so that we might find our life in him. Let me pray for us. King Jesus, you, you are the righteous one. You are the one who's made us alive by surrendering your life. God, I pray that as we uh, wrestle with hard words and texts that we feel so far removed from. Spirit, I pray that by your strength and tenderness and power and clarity that you would help us see the truths and even troubling passages. To see your, your, your call towards us to, to love you and to follow you. And listening well to the voices of those that have been marginalized and oppressed especially when their marginalization and their oppression has come at the hands of wrong-headed biblical interpretations. God, I pray your forgiveness and ask that you would lead us rightly to care for one another, to show your grace and your goodness and your mercy. And Spirit, I pray that your presence right now would be a, would be a balm, that it would be a healing, that it would be an anointing on wounds that maybe even some of those that are watching uh, this service right now have experienced. Spirit, minister and meet. Speak to us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.